This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Hewlett Packard Enterprise, providing expertise and infrastructure to help companies transform their business with AI. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Thursday, January 10th, The Washington Post brought together pioneering researchers, technology innovators, business leaders, and other experts for Transformers Artificial Intelligence. Speakers discussed the latest advances in artificial intelligence, considered how its applications impact our daily lives, and explored critical questions that will profoundly affect the way we integrate and utilize this swiftly evolving technology, from government policy to medical diagnoses to our criminal justice system. In this segment, experts discuss the dangers of creating intelligent systems and machines fueled by data that reflects bias, from hiring practices to criminal sentencing. Let's listen. Thanks for uh, sticking with us. Again, I'm Brian Fung, and I have another panel here for you that uh, is going to delve a little bit more into um, the ethical questions and quandaries surrounding artificial intelligence. Um, and joining me today, we have uh, Sherilyn Eiffel, who's the President and Director Counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Um, Kelly Trindle, who's the Head of the Diversity Analytics um, for the hiring software company Pymetrics. And finally, uh, Miranda Bogan from Upturn, which is an advocacy organization aiming to make automated decision-making fairer. Um, so I wanted to start with Miranda. Uh, you know, you guys published a report recently talking about um, hiring practices using AI and what we're seeing right now in the marketplace. Can you talk a little bit about that? Fill us in. Sure, yeah. Hiring is one of those um, examples that people often throw out when they're talking about some of the problems and risks of AI. And we wanted to dig into that and really understand what type of decisions are um, being made with data in the hiring process. There's this conception that a robot maybe is making a yes, no decision, and it's really much more complicated than that. Um, automated systems like advertising platforms are used to help direct ads to people who are looking for jobs. Then there are job boards that are trying to match between people seeking jobs and to help recruiters kind of sift through potential applicants. This is before anyone's even applied to a job. And then you have, once people apply to a job, there are all sorts of tools that are trying to grade and assess candidates for how likely they are to succeed on the job. And then there are even some tools that are being used to um, optimize the offer to, to see how much would this person accept um, how to, to take this job. So data is really being used throughout the hiring process. AI is being used throughout the hiring process in really subtle ways. And it's really a cumulative decision. So there's not any one decision that's saying this person's hired, this person's not hired. And humans are often involved in different ways. And so I think it's really important to look specifically at um, tools that are being used and understand how they interface with human recruiters, with um, HR departments, advertisers, to understand what the impact of this technology is in a really high-stakes context mm. that's determining who can access um, work and, and you know, financial uh, uh, prosperity in, mm -hmm. in their lives. Mm -hmm. Kelly, how many of these techniques are you guys you know, using or seeing um, you know, reflected in the work that you do? Sure, so the company that I work for, Pymetrics, actually is an example of a vendor that, that uses AI, computer science, for employment selection. And I know we're gonna get into it at some point, but there's a bunch of concern here about like potential bias and different kinds of issues like that. 
And that's actually why I joined this vendor. I'm not any kind of a salesperson, so I hope none of this sounds like a pitch, but I joined from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which obviously is the agency of the federal government that enforces civil rights laws when it comes to employment. And so I joined from the perspective of trying to make employment selection decisions better. Um, and so the particular company that I work for um, does the, we do basically matching. And so we look for like what is what are the characteristics of a person who's successful in a particular position, and then how similar is each candidate to that sort of, for lack of a better term, profile of success. Um, and so that's the particular company that I work for. But before I left the EEOC, I did a lot of research about different companies and what they do in this space and what the pitfalls are. And I think the report that we were just hearing about does a really nice job, if you all have a chance to look at it, really laying out what all the different things are that are out there in this space. Hmm. Um, you know, one way to look at this is that um, use, the use of AI in hiring um, could help employers optimize their workforces and uh, help them better achieve outcomes. Um, but Sherilyn, I'm, I'm also wondering, you know, whether or not these techniques give employers much more power than they used to over um, the people that they hire. What are you seeing? Well, I think the most important thing is to not treat um, these techniques uh, as though they are in some way disconnected from what we know about the reality of bias in employment or bias in law enforcement or all the other places that AI uh, is being used. And I, you know, the, the first and most important thing we should recognize is that we are late. We are already late to uh, ensuring that these techniques are embedded with what we already know about discrimination in this country. And this is my, my kind of um, really concern in this space, which is that we treat AI as though it is the creation of some new world that is inherently impartial or that has the potential to be more impartial than other uh, things in our life. But, you know, AI is created by human beings. Human beings are filled with biases. That There's no judgment in my saying that. That's just the reality. And the entire process of the second half of the 20th century, from Brown versus Board of Education on, was the process of figuring out how to manage those biases in ways that they do not inhibit the ability of, uh, you know, people from disfavored groups and particularly racial minorities from being able to participate fully in American life. So everything that we know about employment discrimination that we know from, you know, the Griggs versus Duke Power case in the 1970s, a case the organization I lead. Uh, litigated everything we know about, you know, tests. Remember when tests were supposed to be the thing that was going to be impartial, right? So it wasn't that you, you know, called your, your best friend or your brother or your brother-in-law for the job, but everybody took the same test. And then we realized that tests had inherent biases and that we had to look at whether or not a test was actually necessary for a job. Um, and then we think about, you know, what makes someone successful on a job and who are the people who get access to the internships and how do people apply online? How, what communities have access to broadband? What communities have access to uh, the opportunity to use online uh, materials. And then it goes even a step further. You know, you now have not only facial recognition technology, but uh, emotion recognition technology that we're hearing some employers are using in interviews, right? So looking at the face of an interviewee and trying to determine uh, what we see about that person and whether they will fit into the workplace. Um, but, you know, we have to underlay that with the reality that there is a, a wealth of data about the ways in which white people interpret the expressions of black people. We live in a segregated society, and so very often we don't know each other. Or white people interpret the expressions of Asian American people. We know that this is a reality. So as we begin to see these technologies just taking off, and we're doing it in a space in which there really isn't a legal regime. I know we like to talk about ethics. Ethics is lovely. I'm a lawyer. I believe in ethics. Mm -hmm. 
You should, you know, govern yourself and all that stuff. But I actually like law because law is important. And these, these laws that we have in the, in the area of criminal justice, in the area of employment and so forth, were hard fought for. Uh, and and they're useful. They're not they're not um, inapplicable to this context, as you were suggesting. And so, um, I'd like to see us really begin to speed up this process of understanding the importance of uh, you know pulling back the mask and understanding that there's no such thing as imperfect impartiality so long as human beings are creating the product, and to be uh, mature and rational about how we can figure out how to embed some of what we've learned. Um, into these products and provide a means of being able to challenge them because that's the trickiest part. You know, who, who's responsible when an algorithm kicked out the names, right? Is there, is, can we trace this back? Uh, if someone discriminates against you in promotion or discriminates you in get, against you in hiring, you know who that person is. You know the HR person you spoke with, you know the, the company, the company has policies and so forth. Um, but who's responsible for these algorithms? And are we simply embedding bias in a way that doesn't even allow us to get at it and understand how it works. And I think that's potentially quite dangerous. One of the things that um, I find striking about what you just said is that it feels like there's kind of a hunger um, for impartiality and control um, you know, when we talk about things like, like AI mm -hmm. um, and, and testing and, and evaluation. Um, what are some of the, the tools we need to improve AI to make it more impartial um, or is that just a fool's errand? Well, I'll just say very briefly, I don't think it's a fool's errand to try and remove bias from uh, instruments that control people's lives. But I do think it begins with a recognition that there is bias, right? And so uh, if you don't begin in that space, if you, if you are beginning with the idea that you're going to be able to cleanse some technology created by human beings, um, you know, without recognizing that if, unless we have fixed ourselves, you know, it's not going to work. Um, then I think it's problematic. And so I think beginning with the idea that, you know, there is bias, what have we learned from this in the context of human interactions and how can we apply that to the technologies that we're using to make sure that there are safeguards in place. Look, hopefully we're all working towards, and I know it's not all, but some of us are working towards a society that will become uh, more equal, that will become more humane, uh, in which we will, you know, not have uh, biases against each other, in it, or if we do, we will be able to recognize them and manage them. That's what I care about, is people being able to recognize and manage their bias. Um, and, and if we're all working towards that, then we should be working towards improving AI instruments to be able to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. If you don't mind me adding to that, just as a specific example, following, you know, like the previous regulations and the legal framework that's been around since, as you mentioned, like different kinds of tests, like you think of traditional tests you may have taken for an employment decision, like a personality test or an IQ test. The way that my company and the way that I'm approaching this, probably because coming from EEOC and having done many investigations of use of tests, I see algorithmic decisions very similarly. And I know there's been some really smart people in this field who have sort of challenged the approach that we could look at these things similarly. But in my day-to-day -day life, there's a decision that's made by the algorithm, just like there was a decision that was made by the IQ test, like Griggs you know, v. Duke Power from way, way back. There's a decision. Who does it affect? Does it affect people differentially? If it does, then there's a problem. And then at the very least, if you're looking at the regulations, you need to have some evidence that the assessment is actually working, that there's like actual evidence that the assessment is job-related, mm -hmm. consistent with business necessity is the language. And so 
These are the laws. We have Title VII. We have the Uniform Guidelines on Employee Selection Procedures. This is what we have. And so I, I, I agree that it's not perfect, because these were written a long time ago, but it still gives us a framework to look at outcomes. How is this affecting people who want jobs, who want promotions, who want better pay, better you know, work situations? I am of the mind that we should be using that same framework and just applying it to, OK, now there's an algorithm. And to your point about who's responsible, I, again, look at it in the same way that the traditional assessment tools were used. The responsible party is the employer who's, who's using this assessment device. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, vendors, like the vendor that I work for, are part of the, the scenario as well. And so vendors, employers, these are the responsible parties. It's not like an algorithm just sort of manifests itself <laughs> and then, above, you yeah. know, whatever. There's people, as you say, behind it. Those people should be held accountable. Can, can I just add one thing? Because we're actually, just this week, you may have read that the Trump administration, the Department of Justice, has um, been, you know, talking internally about trying to um, remove uh, uh, the use of the disparate impact standard, and that's really what was just being described, uh, which is such an important tool because I would think. Just it briefly, for those who don't yeah. know what the disparate impact standard. So is. the disparate impact standard, particularly let's say in the employment context, allows you to do just what was described. You have a particular practice that you use for hiring, and um, you know we, we can see that that practice produces a disparate impact, a disparate result, right? That the result of that is that no African Americans ever uh, pass this particular test or this particular instrument that you are using. That is supposed to be a signal to say, well, wait, wait a minute, what does that mean? Why is that disparity happening? Mm -hmm. And then we begin to probe why that disparity is happening. And one of the questions is, is that instrument actually, and this goes to your point, actually producing the information that I actually need that is necessary for my business for me to be able to identify who the proper people are to work here? So do I need it? Is there a business necessity for using this instrument? Because why would I use an instrument that actually excluded all people of one race if it wasn't actually necessary for my job. So if you're an ethical employer, actually that should matter to you. And in fact, if you want to comply with Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, <laughs> that should matter to you. And so I think this is a really excellent point, that this is precisely the moment in which the Trump administration is trying to get rid of disparate impact, when in fact disparate impact is one of the most important tools that we have in the, in the employment context, in housing, and other areas, but particularly, I think, has the power to be incredibly useful in the AI field, where essentially what you need to do is figure out how is this thing that you're using working? What is the re result it's producing? And then begin to work our way from there to understand whether there's bias embedded in the, the instrument. Yeah. Megan, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I think one of the main things to remember about AI is it's just recognizing patterns. Mm -hmm. And so if we know that there are biased patterns in society, anything we build is going to recognize that. And so you have to approach it um, with that understanding and, and be active in making sure you're doing that type of testing. And I think there is a lot of interest in efficiency. There's a lot of interest in quick fixes and thinking that if we just remove the sensitive features from um, a, an algorithm that's hiring people, if we just don't look at race or gender, then it's going to be fine because we're not using those sensitive characteristics. But once we're looking at so much data, there's a lot of data that's associated with those characteristics. Where you live, um, your behavior online could even be associated with your gender. And so you have to look at outcomes to understand if these tools are doing something that you don't want them to do. Even if you're a well-meaning vendor or a well-meaning employer who, who wants to be, um, who wants to hire fairly, who wants to increase diversity on, on their team, um, just removing those sensitive features isn't, isn't enough because artificial intelligence techniques, um, machine learning, is powerful enough to find these patterns elsewhere. 
elsewhere. Mm. And so I, I, I agree wow. that the uh, disparate impact doctrine is incredibly important, and I think it's really powerful in the employment context. It's written into the law. In these other contexts, it's a little bit more voluntary. It's in regulations, um, but it's something that we should pay close attention to because it's going to be really important in making sure that other um, context where AI is used isn't having these impacts that are um, really moving us backwards. Mm. So don't uh, don't stick your head in the sand yeah. when, when it comes to AI. No, remember when fire departments, you know, you didn't have women firefighters because they had these height requirements. Well, it's not that there are no tall women, right? But it's that it, it, it you know, the, the, the height requirement tended to screen out, like, all women right at the beginning, before you ever had an interview, before you learned anything about them, before, right? So if we just kind of take that to the 10th power, and what you're describing really actually was just very uh, chilling, you know, about the way in which AI can actually look for patterns that we can't even imagine and think of. And I think in terms of testing, it's so important in employment and elsewhere, and the challenge with AI is, can we still do testing in the same way we used to be able to? A really important part of testing for discrimination in employment is sending out resumes and seeing what you get back. Um, as you have all of these tools um, starting to parse through resumes, it's happening before people are even sending resumes. Mm -hmm. It's happening, you know, it's tests that are happening after you've maybe made it through the first process, um, but then you have to take some kind of online test or do an interview, um, which really raises the, the cost of doing that type of testing or makes it quite difficult to know what you should be testing in the first place. So I think it's definitely possible to do this type of testing as long as you know what you're looking for, as long as you know which tools an employer is using, which techniques an employer is using. And I think that's where it gets complicated with AI because that might be classified as a trade secret. That might be um, something that uh, an employer wants to keep a close hold on because they don't want people to game the system. Um, so we have to make sure that even as we're using these tools, that the laws that we have on the books that are, are you know, strong and were, were framed very well are still enforceable, are still testable. And I think um, that's something where more attention is needed. So um, we've got a great question here from the audience. Um, Matthew asks, would implicit attitude tests work on exposing bias in AI, or are they only good for testing humans? Hmm. Uh, so my understanding of implicit, implicit attitudes tests is that they're developed for humans to take. So in case for anyone who's not familiar, it, it goes back to what we were hearing about before, that I mean, any well-meaning person, you believe that you don't have stereotypes, right? But it turns out that every human being. I mean, it's part of our ability to like think about things and our heads do not explode. <laughs> so you have a stereotype for like what a table is or what a chair is. I mean, this doesn't have to be necessarily related to human beings. But that, that extends into how you think about people. So you might not realize it, but when you see a woman, like certain things occur to you. You know, when you see uh, an Asian American, certain things occur to you without realizing it. And so these implicit attitude tests uh, are a good way of testing that. And so I think it's an interesting question. If I understand it correctly, the question is, can you sort of like run an, an AI algorithm through an implicit attitudes test? It's, it's an interesting thing to think about. I think it's almost, I think sometimes general you know, folks approach this and think it's harder to figure out if an algorithm is biased than it really is. <laughs> it's actually not that hard to determine if you're following like a traditional approach. As I was saying before, everything has an outcome. Everything, you know, all these algorithms, they have a decision that they're making. And if you're running enough people through the algorithm, you can simply look. Is the algorithm you know, preferring men over women? It either is or it isn't. So it's not really like, that much harder, in, in my experience, to, <laughs> to determine if this algorithm is performing in a way that's unfair. And then, 
if the algorithm is what I would call white box, meaning open, meaning you can look at it and see what the inputs are and how they're performing in the algorithm, then you can go a step further and say, it's this input. This input right here is the one that's causing the difference between men and women, for example. And then if the nice thing about algorithms, actually, is that there's so many inputs that you can afford to take that one out, that one that's causing the problem, and then look at it again. Is it still causing the same effect? You know, whatever the differences might be. And what's further nice about algorithms is that you can automate this process. Like, okay, check it. Okay, it's causing adverse impact. Remove that thing. Mm -hmm. Check it again. And this can happen quickly. Whereas, like when we used to have to do this by hand, it was a slower process. Um, Pymetrics has actually open sourced our code, so anybody who knows Python can go to GitHub and look for Audit AI, and you can see the actual code for what I'm talking about. We're not the only ones. There's been some others who have open sourced this. But really, it's um, so I think it's an interesting idea, IAT, but I don't even think it's that necessary. I think it's, it's much clearer to me, having done, I used to do the statistics for cases where it was like an IQ test or a personality test when I was at EEOC, and my approach has been, there's no reason why we can't just <laughs> take it and look at algorithms the same way. What, but what, you, what we really do need to do is look at the, the data that's being used to build these tools mm -hmm. to see if you can spot any problems there even before yep. you build a yep. tool. Like mm -hmm. If a company is using its um, assessment data to, say, to decide who's a high-performing employee and who's a less high-performing employee, you should look at that data to see if that exhibits any disparities because if it does, your, your, your model's gonna do the same thing. And then if you remove those factors that are, that are causing disparities in the algorithm, you're gonna end up with people who the company doesn't think are successful and then they're going to stop using that tool that is you know, maybe a fairer process than they were using before. So I think that you can use these techniques, you can use data, algorithms, AI to spot issues within a company's own hiring process and really reflect on those before turning to a tool that's going to you know, fix the, the problem right there. I think this is, a, this is something that we have to look at throughout the life cycle of building these tools and not just in the tools themselves. Mm -hmm. And also think about how the people using these tools are understanding them. Mm -hmm. If a human recruiter is looking at a list of scores that maybe took a Pymetrics test or, or another test, and they see that someone scored a 95% uh, match with the job and someone scored a 92% match, that might seem like a really dramatic difference, even if in reality they would actually perform equally as well because the way that the company measures is really not so specific. It's just sort of on how do they do this year, pretty good or not so good, and not you know specific output numbers. And so I think um, another risk with using AI in this context and in others is that it it creates this um, illusion of, of specificity and accuracy that might end up having a powerful influence on a human decision maker mm. um, when you know you don't actually need so much specificity to achieve the outcome that you want as an employer or if you're looking in um, a context like criminal justice you know if you're if you're thinking about um, who should be granted bail or not, um, you're predicting how likely someone is to, to return for trial. If it says you're a 52% you know, chance, that might seem low or high. I'm not sure. You'd have to test how humans interpret that score, but that might not actually tell you much. That person might have a very close chance of someone who, who has a 70% chance of returning if you're looking at the actual outcome data. So you have to not only test them, the math of these tools, but also test them in the wild, see how people interpret them, how they use them. Mm -hmm. Are these tools making decisions on their own or are they informing people to really understand those outcomes and do the, and, and not only do the testing, but, but take the appropriate mm -hmm. uh, response to remedy any problems that you spot. So there's a really interesting tension that I'm detecting here, which is, um, you know, on the one hand, 
used properly, algorithms could potentially help the public keep employers more accountable because you actually can look at the outputs um, that were you know, generated by the algorithm as opposed to having to confront a human and you know, ask them to justify their behavior and all that. Um, on the other hand, that only works if you get to unpack the algorithm, right? So how do we make sure um, employers or, or large organizations, institutions, um, you know, actually are, are in a position to show us what they're doing with the algorithms? Do we need policies for that? Yeah, I mean, starting with the, the regulations that we have, you know, there is, there is precedent that employers are supposed to be, whether you're using an AI tool or any other kind of test, you're supposed to be collecting data so that you can test regularly the effect of that tool. Mm. So I think that's the same again. Mm -hmm. I think the part where, you, and then if there is a difference, you're supposed to search for a, a, le a less discriminatory alternative is the language. Um, and you're supposed to be documenting that the tool is job-related and consistent with business necessity. Now, I think the thing that you're touching on is a little bit weedsier for one minute and 35 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's a really good question. Like, um, you know, I am lucky to work for an organization that, as I said, is a white box model. I know exactly the data that we're collecting. I know what it means. I have construct validity for it. I feel really good about what we're measuring, how it's job related. Now, there's lots of vendors in this space who do things like scraping the web and like just collecting passively, you know, uh, digital exhaust is like some language that folks use. So unpacking those like sort of maybe more like black box models where you can't quite make sense of what the inputs are, it's possible that there may meet, you know, need to be sort of new policy, new regulations, uh, approaches for that, because I don't think it's quite clear. Yeah, I think there has to be. I mean, I think this is such a fraught space. You know, first of all, we've got two things that are juxtaposed, which is one that, you know, people get really nervous and anxious when you start talking about bias and they don't want to talk about it and they feel like you're personally attacking them and so there's all that anxiety. And then on the other hand, there's this like crazy Shangri-La Brigadoon conversation about AI <laughs> that makes people feel like this is just the, you know, this is tomorrow and this is so wonderful and these two things mash matching up. Uh, mashing up together, you know, operate in a space of avoidance. And so the first thing we need to do, and, you know, and particularly this is where the people who are writing about this and who are engaged in talking about this have to begin to talk about this reality and to stop talking about these AI instruments as though they're opening up some brave new world that doesn't carry with it all the problems of the old world. And so that's the beginning. The second piece is to understand that we have law for a reason. We don't have law and then you create something new and then, like, law doesn't matter. I mean, these are conversations that I have with Facebook and, and others as well. Um, we created this construct. This construct was created around a struggle. I mean, a, a really a life and death struggle for real people. And what happened in cases like Briggs versus, Briggs versus a Duke Power Company is that entire industries, in, you know, in those years, the textile industry, the steel industry, unions, and so forth, opened up as a result of, of the laws that were imposed to produce precisely the, the regime that we're talking about right now. And that regime needs to be integrated into the use of these new instruments. I'm sure it has to be tweaked for all the reasons that you all have so eloquently described and should be. And I think that's actually exciting to think about that. But the idea that it, it exists separate and apart from it and so some some cases are going to actually you know that's going to what's going to happen right there's going to be some litigation and that litigation is going to push us to the point of understanding that we have to integrate these two things it shouldn't happen that way but it will happen that way mm -hmm. ran any parting thoughts before we let you go i think you know, sometimes the outcomes are unsurprising um, and sometimes they're surprising. And I think um, whoever, the people who are building these tools need to be very aware of the context that they're working in. It, you know, uh, if you're a data scientist or a computer scientist, you're not just building a computer program, mm -hmm. you're um, introducing a product that's going to affect people's lives. And I think that 
there's more cross-pollination that's needed between the tech community that are building these tools, the people that they're that are going to be impacted the tools, not just the users, not just to do user testing, but thinking sort of down the line, who's this going to affect? And then thinking about the regulators and policymakers to talk together about, you know, how do we update the, the key laws that we have um, for this new context that isn't, you know, it's only speeding up. Well, this has been a really fascinating discussion. I'm sorry we don't have more time. Um, but thank you for joining me, and uh, we're going to move on to our next. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.